Now, a few weeks ago, in the previous sermon in Colossians, in which we considered chapter 1, verses 24 to 29, we explored, among other things, what Paul meant when he said that he was filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. We're not going to go back into that in any kind of detail, but what a remarkable phrase, what a remarkable statement that is, that something was lacking in Christ, and Paul, in his afflictions, was hoping to fill it up. We saw that at least in part Paul was speaking of the close identification, the true union that Christ has with Paul and with all believers, which meant, practically speaking, that when Paul suffered affliction, Jesus suffered right there with him. When you suffer affliction, Jesus is suffering that affliction right there with you. Paul said back in verse 24 of chapter 1 that he rejoiced in his sufferings because he knows that Jesus is sharing, participating in his sufferings. And he takes great comfort in knowing that. And related to, but not identical with, Paul's sufferings are the struggles that he mentions in verse 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What is it that he's toiling with. What is it that he's struggling for? Well, he toils and struggles to proclaim Jesus Christ, who he says in verse 27, is in you, the hope of glory. And this great mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory, is what Paul toils and struggles to make known with all of the strength and the energy that God has given to him. He sees the strength that has been given to him, the energy that has been given to him. He sees that as having its own pur- only purpose to be the proclamation of the good news of the gospel. And we know at least a little bit about Paul's sufferings, his toils, his toilings, his laborings. His, his labor to proclaim this mystery took Paul to many different places all over the Mediterranean. And in those various places, he got to see the inside of several jails. And most likely, this letter to the Colossians was written from the inside of a jail in Ephesus. Paul was beaten as a part of this labor and toil. He was accused. He was whipped. He was shipwrecked. He was despised. He was chased out of towns. And he counted it all joy. He rejoiced in his sufferings. You can see how the thoughts from the previous verses in chapter 1 carry over into chapter 2 as we get into it. Words like struggle and mystery and make known or knowledge. These words that were used in chapter 1, they're now to be found in our verses in chapter 2. And so even though there's a chapter break, we have to say that was, that was put in later. That's not original to Scripture, although we have to take those chapter breaks at least somewhat seriously. Even though there's a chapter break there, the thoughts of the previous paragraph in chapter 1, they are continued into and expanded upon because, as Paul said in verse 28, he wants to present everyone mature in Christ. He wants the Colossians, the Laodiceans, others who have not seen him face to face, he wants you and me to be presented mature in Christ. That leads us to what I would ask you, this thought I would ask you to consider as we work our way through the sermon this morning. God makes us mature by knitting us together in love and giving us understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. 
God makes us mature by knitting us together in love and giving us and giving understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. The sermon is divided into three parts. The first, struggle to encourage. The second, assurance of understanding. And the third, decently and in good order. Again, the first part, struggle to encourage. The second, assurance of understanding. And the third, decently and in good order. So let's look at the first part of the sermon now, struggle to encourage. In the first chapter, the first verse rather of chapter 2, Paul highlights the fact that these people in Galatia to whom he writes, as well as those in Laodicea, and, and others have not seen him face to face. Paul is assuming here that the church to whom he writes in Colossians, that, that they'll pass this letter along. But why is that? Because they understood that this is the word of God. They, they knew, the early church knew. In the 50s AD already, they knew that when Paul the apostle wrote, his words were to be treated as authoritative, as scripture. They read them in worship services. They copied them. They passed them along to other churches. Already, it's happening. And Paul is acknowledging as much in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now, this doesn't mean that the Colossians and the Laodiceans, even though they had not seen him face to face, it doesn't mean that they don't know him or at least know of him. He'd been in ministry as an apostle by that time for nearly 15 to 20 years. And he would have been known by many people, even in that ancient and primitive day, without social media or the internet. Word got around. Paul had a reputation. In some circles, the reputation was really good. In others, not so great. But he is a mystery to them in the sense that they don't know what he looks like. They've never seen his face. They've never heard his voice in person. But they recognize and they submit to his teaching because they know that he is one of the apostles Jesus specifically called to establish his church. Now, later in our passage, later in the sermon, Paul's apostolic authority is going to be set in contrast with those seeking to delude the Colossians and others with plausible arguments. He says that later in our passage. But for now, he's reminding these readers, the Colossians, that though they've never met in person, he is an apostle laboring for them. Laboring, struggling, toiling for them. We might add, as he sits in prison, because verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 3 makes clear that he was in prison while this letter was being written. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul is in prison because of the word, because of his call. But he's still toiling. He's still laboring. He's still struggling on behalf of others. Now, you all, I think most everybody, at one point in your life or another, you've sat in a class and most of the time we as adults, we have classes and when someone comes in, they the first day of class, the first moment of the, that, that period of instruction, they, they, they give you a sense of who they are. They tell you a little bit about themselves. They're basically telling you why you ought to listen to them. So, for instance, yesterday, I referenced this in the announcements, 10 of us, we gathered together up at a range, uh, way off in the sticks, <laughs> um, uh, to gain some instruction. And we had a, had a man who, uh, first words out of his mouth were, here's who I am. Here's what I do. Here's how long I've done it. 
been in law enforcement for 30 years. He was establishing himself by his words, with his words, as an authority. Now, early on into uh, this uh, training session, his, the sidekick, uh, his wingman, uh, spoke up and said, yeah, you need to listen to him. He's one of the best trainers I or anybody else have ever heard. So he's got a, he's got a, a witness. He's got someone who can testify to his abilities as, as an instructor in, in security and safety and firearms training and all of those kinds of things. So those of us who were there, I can't speak for every man who was there. I'm saying, okay, I want to listen to this guy, see what he has to say. Now, when he opened his mouth and began training, if he had given off any indication that he did not know what he was talking about, those of us who were there, we very quickly, some sooner than others, we would have realized this guy's not worth our time. He's not training us. He's not teaching us anything that really is going to be a benefit to us. Thankfully, by God's grace, that wasn't the case. And as soon as he began to talk and train, it was very clear that this, this man knew what he was talking about. He cared about the church. He's a believer. The, the, the sidekick is a believer, too. He, he wants safety and security to be had in, in each every church. And, and it was clear that he had spent the time that it took to, to get uh, to know his topic. He knew it intimately. He had rounds fired at him in hostility. Um, he was familiar with, with the sights and the sounds of that kind of thing. And so we all listened to him, and we took what he said, and we were glad about it. We were thankful for it. At the beginning of this letter... Paul tells us that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Those are his credentials. But anybody could have made that claim. And in fact, there were some who wrote letters in the name of Paul. They tried to pass themselves off as Paul or some other apostle in order to have that credibility. Why did the Colossians listen to Paul? Why was this letter preserved out of who knows how many other letters that weren't preserved by the church? Why was it? Well, Paul says, I'm an apostle appointed by the will of God. But then he begins to write. And when you read the words of this letter, when you read the words of the other canonical scriptures, you hear the authority of God. You hear the Lord speaking in these letters. And so, if... If Paul had not backed up what he said about himself, he had not backed up his credentials with the authority of God speaking through him, then the Colossian letter would never have been saved. We wouldn't have it today. We wouldn't listen to it today. And so ultimately, Paul's apostolic authority proved itself in his own words. His authority came through in what he wrote, as well as by what he's willing to endure on behalf of the one he serves. And that's the other thing that backs him up. Paul's not writing in the lap of luxury as he makes his way around the Mediterranean. He's not making massive profits off of this uh, gospel ministrations in which he's engaging. He's in prison. And frequently he was imprisoned. He was probably most of the time living on the edge of poverty in order to carry out uh, the duties to which he'd been called. He had gained nothing in a worldly sense by becoming an apostle of Jesus. He's gained prison. He's, he's gained poverty. All of these other things. In the eyes of the world, that is worse than nothing. But it showed how much he loved Jesus Christ and his church. And there in prison, 
What does Paul write to these people? He writes that he wants them to be encouraged. And the word translated encouraged in most modern English translations is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe the Holy Spirit as the comforter. Paraclete. In the King James, it actually uses that word, comforter, to give you comfort. By these words, Paul is encouraging them. He's he's comforting them in in these words. He wants them to be built up in the middle of what would have been a miserable situation for the rest of us, prison, Paul wants to encourage to comfort others. He's showing them what a true apostle of Jesus Christ is. That brings us to the second part of the sermon, assurance of understanding. He wants them to be encouraged, he says, to reach all of the riches of full assurance of understanding. But notice what he says between those words, encouraged and to reach. He says, being knit together in love. Now, he's not specifically encouraging them to knit their hearts together in love, but he's saying that this is the context in which their hearts are encouraged, in which they will reach all of the riches of full assurance of understanding. In other words, let me put it a little bit more plainly here, full assurance of understanding does not happen for the Christian in a vacuum, in isolation for from other Christians. That's a recipe for not growing into full assurance. That's a recipe for disaster. God does not intend for His children to go it alone. Being a child of the Father means that we are part of His family. Now, a lot of people have dropped out of church because of the imperfections of the church. It's true. No church, no church leader, no church session is perfect. And there are some so-called churches that should absolutely be avoided because they're not true churches. But ideally and ordinarily, there are exceptions, of course. Those would be extraordinary exceptions. Believers need to be part of a local body. I know that I'm preaching to the choir here. If you're here this morning... It's likely because you're convinced that you need to be members of Christ's church. But I've been around long enough to see the turnover in church membership, the churn as it is, even in a church as small as ours. Some move to other faithful churches, which is totally appropriate. Some go from here, they go out of here, they go to another church, and we commend them to it, and we bless them, even though they're no longer with us. We're glad that they're a part of another faithful church. But others leave here, and they don't end up anywhere else. They, they sort of fizzle out. In that situation, there's no knitting together in love of the hearts of those who are being encouraged. In fact, there's no encouragement, not true encouragement. You see, we were designed to be in communion with God and with other believers. Soloing it, lone rangering it, doesn't work over the long term for a follower of Jesus. And that's because, as Paul indicates in Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, Christ's body is formed in and by a group of believers. Listen to what he says there in Galatians 4. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Christ is formed in the church. Christ is formed by the church. Because the church is his body. One lone person is not the body of Christ. The body of Christ is made up of many parts, many people. But as Paul indicates in this verse, it takes time for Christ's body to be formed. It cannot be formed by one person in isolation from other believers. So Paul wants them together. 
to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is done together as a community, as a body, not apart. I have to say here that I'm indebted for this next part. I'm indebted to to Dr. Beale for pointing out in his commentary on this passage the parallels between these verses and Daniel chapter 2. And in his commentary, he notes that the combination of the four words, mystery, hidden, wisdom, and understanding, are found in Scripture only in Daniel 2 and Colossians 2. And we read in part of Daniel 2 for our scripture reading. But the wider context, of course, is that King Nebuchadnezzar, he'd had a dream, and he wanted his wise men and his magicians to tell him not only the interpretation of the dream, but to tell him what his dream was. He was putting them to the test. I'm not going to tell you my dream. I want you to tell me what it was and then give me the interpretation. And what did the magicians do? These wise men, they threw up their arms, and this has never been done. You're supposed to tell us the dream, and then we give you the interpretation. And then hopefully you'll die before we do and find out the interpretation wasn't correct. (laughs) Well, enter Daniel, stage right. After the king had said, if you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you're all going to die. All of you wise men in the land, you're going to die. Daniel comes in. And he tells the king that no man can tell him what his dream was, nor what the mystery of this dream means. But then he says, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in latter days. And then Daniel proceeds in the passage after what we read. Daniel proceeds to tell the king what he dreamed. And then he gave him the meaning, the interpretation of it. And the most important part of that interpretation was that God would set up a kingdom represented by the stone that was cut from a mountain that would never be destroyed. That kingdom would never be destroyed. What's the connection? Paul, in using this language, in in making this allusion to Daniel 2, he's saying the mystery of that dream to Nebuchadnezzar, the mystery is revealed to be Jesus Christ. And it's His kingdom that's being set up. Well, Beale also very helpfully points out that there's a great deal of overlap between Colossians 2, verses 2 and 3, and Proverbs 2, verses 3 to 6, which says, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you speak it like, seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For Yahweh gives wisdom... From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. As Beale says, Christ epitomizes true wisdom in Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 17. What was a mystery for God's Old Testament people, as we see in Daniel and in Proverbs, it has been revealed to us to be Jesus Christ. And so as we walk together in this path, we grow in knowledge and understanding of what in former times was a mystery. Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. In other words, as you better and better get to know who Jesus is and what he has done, in the context of a congregation of followers of Jesus, you will grow in assurance and understanding. You will better understand what, for those uh, who don't know Jesus, is a mystery. But you don't know. 
You can't know everything there is to know about Jesus when you first start out on this journey. Some people know it more, some people know it less. Typically, our children know less, but grow in their understanding. That's why we have classes in this church that are aimed at different levels of understanding. And as our children grow and mature, they're taught at different, more mature levels. A newbie to the faith, which typically our children are, hasn't had time to learn what someone who's been walking with Jesus for the past 50 years has learned. But each of us, each of us should have as our goal to grow in our knowledge and understanding of Jesus. None of us should be complacent or content with where we are and what we know about Jesus. We know the one about whose kingdom Nebuchadnezzar could only dream and for whom it was far off. That one, Jesus Christ, has come and he has established his kingdom and he continues to build his kingdom and we are citizens of his kingdom by believing in him. That brings us to the third of the final point of the sermon, decently and in good order. Now, if there is a life verse for officers in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, it's 1 Corinthians 14, 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. We love that verse. And we love to think that if Paul were alive today, that he would rejoice to see our good order in the OPC. If he came and visited Mid-Cities, we hope he'd be very impressed with how orderly we do things. But in the context of our passage this morning, his reference to good order in verse 5 probably doesn't have as much to do with how perfectly we adhere to Robert's rules in our meetings or how well we keep our minute books. It more than likely has to do with how well grounded we are in knowing Jesus Christ. Paul said that he wants to present everyone mature in Christ. He said that he struggles so that believers' hearts are encouraged to reach all of the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And now in verse 4, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now remember what we said early on about credentials and authority. Paul had credentials. But he also spoke and wrote with the kind of authority that comes only from God the Holy Spirit himself. And so his words about his credentials were backed up by the authority of the words he spoke and wrote. In contrast to Paul, there are those who would lead the Colossian Christians, and we too, if possible, astray. And they would do so with plausible arguments. They would do so with reasoning that sounds true. And now we're beginning to get to Paul's chief concern and the occasion, rather the the reason for which he wrote the letter. We talked about this early on when when just starting out in this letter. The main reason that the letters of the New Testament were written generally, and this one in particular, was to protect Christ's sheep from false teachers. God's people have always been targets of false teachers. God's people, Christians, are very trusting We're very trusting. And if another person says, hey, I'm a believer too. We just want to take them in and we want to trust them and we'll we'll entrust to them perhaps things that we should not entrust to them. Many, not all, but many who are on the airwaves, on radio or TV, are false teachers. Many of them are. 
And a good rule of thumb, a general rule that you can go by is this. I don't have to obey this teacher I'm watching on TV or listening to on the radio because he has no spiritual authority over me. Even if he's a good one. Even if he's one of the good guys. If he's on the radio or the TV, I guess perhaps if you're a member of this church and you're watching us on Facebook, okay, you know. But if he's on television, on radio, you're watching on YouTube, and he's not your pastor, he's not one of your elders, you are not bound to listen to him. Even good guys, even good pastors get it wrong. But if he's on the radio, he's not in spiritual authority over you. It doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to radio preachers or TV preachers, but be discerning. Another way to put it, which may seem a little bit scary at first, is this. If this person doesn't have the authority to discipline me, to correct me, when I stray off into theological error or engage in sinful behavior, I don't have to listen to that person. If I haven't entrusted this person with the care of my soul, I do not have to listen to this person when he tells me that I have to do this thing or do that thing. He's not in spiritual authority over me. Well, that's not to say that you shouldn't listen to preachers and teachers on the radio or TV. Just recognize that they don't have any spiritual authority over you. They're not in direct oversight with you. They don't know you. They just have been given a really nice platform by which they can get the word out. Having this mindset will protect you so that if you do come across a false teacher, even if you don't realize that he is at that point, you won't be placing yourself under his authority. Now the greatest insurance against falling under the spell of a false teacher is of course knowing Jesus Christ. Knowing him well. Knowing him as fully as it is possible to know him. And that requires you knowing what scripture, what scripture teaches about him. You've got to know the original so that you can spot the counterfeit a mile away. You've got to know true doctrine so that you know false teaching the moment you hear it. And that takes time. It takes being immersed in God's word in the context of a local church week in and week out. It's true. Jesus is a mystery. He is the mystery. But for the Christian, he doesn't remain a mystery. The mystery has been revealed to be Jesus. And so if someone comes along telling you that Jesus Christ is anyone other than the eternally begotten Son of God who came in the flesh, if they try to tell you that Jesus did not live a sin, sinless life, if they try to tell you that He did not die in your place for your sins, stay away. If someone tells you that you have to add to your own works, uh, to add your own works to the work of Jesus in order to be saved, if they try to tell you that, yes, of course you need to have faith in Jesus, but you also need to have faithfulness in order to be justified, stay away. Jesus Christ was, is, and will always be fully God. He is and will continue forever to be fully man. He came and lived a perfectly obedient life, never sinning always doing His Father's will. And His obedience is counted as your obedience if you believe in Him. He died a perfect, sacrificial death on the cross, taking our place, and has washed us by His blood. Believe these things, 
And you can have assurance of salvation. Believe these things and you can trust that Paul would rejoice if he were to come and visit you. He would rejoice in seeing the firmness of your faith. That's what Paul wants for the followers of Jesus Christ. He wants you to be mature in your faith. He wants you to grow. He wants you to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ so that you will love Him more and more and not be tempted to stray when presented with false teaching. And the Lord has done this for you in part by sticking you here with all of these other imperfect people who will walk with you who will put their arm around your shoulder and help you, who will instruct you in one way or another, under shepherds who will seek to to correct you when you stray, who will call you back home when you wander. Christ has done this for you, not to torture you, because He loves you. He loves you, brothers and sisters. And that is good news. Let's pray.